Good morning, Landmark Christian Fellowship. Uh, it's good to be able to share the word with you this morning. Um, this is coming to you from uh, near Carolina, Alberta, out at Clearwater College, and uh, would love to be uh, with you in Manitoba, although I'm not sure how much more in person we would be able to be. So um, we all look forward to these restrictions being lightened someday, hopefully soon. Um, nonetheless, uh, I'm really blessed that I can bring the word to you and trust that um, in spite of it being online, that the Lord works his wonders um, in powerful ways. He's not restricted by these, um, by these restrictions. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Um, I want to share with you um, about Jesus being the author of our faith. We tend to focus on things that we don't get or things that go wrong. I think of my children. There are times where we've had um, maybe a movie night, uh, a really special evening with, with the kids. And um, normally we'll have some sort of snack before bed and um, they, they'll maybe want, uh, when we have a special movie or something, they'll maybe want to have some ice cream for a really special snack. And uh, if we say, well, no, we're not going to have ice cream tonight. Um, one of them or two of them or whatever, they might get really sad about it and, and kind of be like, well, why can't we have this? Why can't we have that? And, and, and then I got to bring them back to the point of, hey, you know what? We just watched a movie. Um, which we don't normally do. We watched a family movie, spent some time together, really enjoyed our time together, and now all you're focusing on is what you're not getting rather than what you actually did receive. You had a great, uh, great time, loved the movie, and now just because you're not getting a bowl of ice cream, you're upset, and this is the worst day of your life. All right. Well, um, we, even when we grow up, we sometimes think along those lines, right? Uh, it's tempting for us to focus on our circumstances. It's tempting for us to focus on problems that are going on in our lives, on our worries, on our shortcomings, on our weaknesses, on our sins, um, or on anything else that can sometimes keep us stuck in a state of hopelessness, like, oh, nothing good is happening. And our eyes are focused on what we don't have rather than what we do have. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, you're probably familiar with this verse. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is where we need to have our eyes fixed, on Jesus, Right? He's the one who endured suffering for the sake of joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It's interesting how joy and suffering are often in the scriptures in the same kind of context. And um, Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is fullness of joy. And so, you know, I, I, I imagine Jesus kind of looking at the cross and, and thinking, okay, you know, there, there will be, this will bring me into his presence where there is fullness of joy sitting at his right hand, the right hand of the throne of God, the very presence of God, there's fullness of joy. And so he endured the cross in order to be able to be in the fullness of joy with his father. 
and of course, everything else that came along with that, the redemption of mankind and, and so on. This is who we fix our eyes on. We focus on him and that joy that comes of being in his presence. And his presence is fullness of joy. So our faith story needs to be authored by Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's ultimately his story that's being worked out. We get to be a part of it, which is awesome. And when we're not focused on him, when we rather are focused on our own circumstances or, or different things, we kind of miss the point of the story, what he's trying to do, what he's trying to accomplish. We've really got to remember to let him finish writing the story. Just prior to this verse in Hebrews chapter 11, we read about the heroes of faith. And these were people who trusted the Lord and they fixed their eyes on him. But they were only part of the story. It's like a chapter in the story and the story keeps going. It says in, in Hebrews 11 verses 38 and 39, it says these, speaking of the, the heroes of faith, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And, and uh, the idea here that, you know, God, God's writing a, a big story throughout history. And there are some things that he takes centuries to bring to fulfillment. The prophecies about even Jesus coming of his son being born, you know, they were written hundreds of years before they actually took place. He's writing a story of history, which, which is a beautiful story. So we need to keep our eyes fixed on him. And then we can have that joy that's set before us, knowing that he's doing something wonderful in history, the author of history. So with that, it's a bit of a longer introduction there, but with that in mind, the necessity of fixing our eyes on him and the idea of him working and authoring his story in us and throughout all of history, let's pray and then um, we'll look at another passage. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father, so that we, we can keep our eyes fixed on, on you, knowing that you've accomplished what needs to be done in order for us to join you there, to be in the, in the fullness of joy with the Father. Lord, I pray that as I, as I share here, as we look at your word a little more, um, Lord, that we would be um, reminded, quickened by your spirit to keep our eyes fixed on you, regardless of what's going on around us and regardless of what's going on inside of us, that our eyes would be fixed on you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you can turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. We're going to take a look at that passage. This is one of the genealogies of Jesus. Uh, as you're doing that, uh, I just want to share a little bit. I, I really enjoy genealogies. Um, I've done a good number of, or quite a bit of um, research into my family history, and I am full-blood Mennonite, uh, which means I'm related to probably most of you. Um, I, can, I can trace my ancestry back to the Netherlands. So through, uh, my parents were born in Mexico, and then back into Canada where my grandparents were born, and back to Russia, and, and so on, all the way back to the Netherlands. And... Um, I have these ancestors that show up in the Netherlands and I end up at these very same ancestors eight different ways through my ancestry because 
my parents are related, my grandparents are related, and they're, they're all related to each other, all four of my grandparents, and so on. And, and so you end up at the same spot all the time. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. My parents are only six cousins once removed, so it's, it's, it's pretty distant. Um, my mom, in terms of her family, she has over 300 first cousins, and some of you might compete with that too. Uh, I only have 59. Um, but I, I love to look at family history and how we connect and where we came from and so on. It's fascinating. And in the scriptures, uh, there's a number of genealogies as well. We're going to look uh, in particular at the one in Matthew. Uh, Matthew shows us a very specific, strategically presented uh, genealogy. And uh, we won't focus so much on, on his uh, divisions of 14, um, other than to say that scholars... Um, believe that he used the number 14 because 14 is actually the numeric value of King David's name. David is uh, the numeric value of it is 14. Um, but I'll get into that. But I'm going to read, read this, and then we're going to take a look at a number of things here. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. All right. So, the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I totally understand it, uh, that when you're reading through the scriptures and you come to a genealogy, you just kind of pass over it. And you go to the next part where the story continues. And so, um, and there's probably several reasons for it. One of them, genealogies don't have a whole lot of plot. They're not all that exciting, and they don't have a lot of teaching for us in terms of practical application. I get it. Secondly, um, we usually can't even read most of the names in the genealogies in the Bible anyway. And uh, so we just kind of skip on from them. But uh, I do want to highlight some things in this genealogy and... Um, Actually, as I was preparing this, it's fascinating to me some of the some of the insight uh, in this genealogy and and related to it. Uh, the one thing I, I really want to focus on here is the fact that there are five women mentioned in this genealogy. We have Tamar, we have Rahab, we have Ruth, we have Bathsheba, although she's just referred to as um, 
Uriah's wife. And then we have Mary. And each of these women has a really interesting story attached to them. And in many cases, they're quite messy. Tamar, so this is the story you find in Genesis chapter 38. So Judah, who was one of um, Jacob's sons and where the tribe of Judah comes from, he went and he married a Canaanite woman and had three sons with her, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And Ur, his oldest son, married Tamar. She was likely a Canaanite woman. But it says that Ur did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. And the way things worked back then is that if the brother would die, then the other brother would marry the widow to carry on the name. And you even read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, I think it's verse 5, um, where it talks about uh, if, if your brother dies, you take his wife as your wife and you have children by her, but at least the firstborn son will be in the name of your dead brother and so that his lineage continues very foreign to us in our culture, in our day. But that's how it worked. And so Ur was put to death by the Lord. And um, so then his brother Onan married Tamar. Onan didn't want to carry on his brother's name. And so that was wicked. And the Lord put him to death as well. And so here we have the first two sons of Judah put to death. The third son, he was quite a bit younger. And so he Judah told Tamar, well, once he gets older, then, you know, I'll let you marry him. But he never really had any intentions of doing that, having had his first two sons killed by the Lord. So what ends up happening is that um, Judah's wife eventually passes away. He goes on a bit of a journey. Uh, Tamar knows he's going on this journey. And so she goes and she disguises herself as a prostitute. And Judah hires her for her services. And uh, doesn't know her. She keeps her face disguised. And uh, she becomes pregnant. And in that whole process, he had left with her his cord, his seal, and his staff. And so as time goes on, um, like Tamar lived with Judah uh, in, in the, the family household. Um, as time goes on, they find out that Tamar is pregnant. And Judah is like, this is horrible. She needs to be put to death. She shouldn't have done this. This is really wrong. And so then she reveals by having his cord, staff, and seal that he was actually the father uh, of this child. And he, he actually publicly repents. It's one of the first recordings in the scripture of that happening. And that seems to be a turning point in his life, uh, a really positive thing, actually. But recognizes his wrongdoing for how he, he didn't treat Tamar properly. And so here she has... Uh, a son, who then happens to be in the ancestry of Jesus. It's a bit of a messy situation. Then we have Rahab. So if you'll recall, this is a story found in Joshua chapter 2. So uh, Moses has just died, and Joshua's leading the Israelites into the promised land. So he sends in two spies, uh, just to kind of scope things out. They go into Jericho, and they go and meet Rahab. Well, Rahab was the local prostitute. And so they, um, they hide in her home. She hides them from, uh, from the soldiers and protects them. And as a result of their interaction, uh, as a result of her act of faith in hiding them, um, 
there's an arrangement made that basically says, um, yeah, we will spare your house here. So bring your family into your house, hang this scarlet cord out your window. And when we come to destroy the city, you'll be spared, whoever's in this house. And so uh, that's what happens. She's spared. She ends up integrating into the Israelite um, community, marries a man, and here she is in the ancestry of Christ, a Canaanite prostitute in the ancestry of Christ. A bit of a messy situation. Then we have Ruth. So this, of course, is found in the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Where did the Moabites come from? Well, if you'll recall back in Genesis, uh, Lot and his family, uh, they were living in Sodom, and um, God ended up destroying the city of Sodom, and Lot and his wife and his two daughters did manage to escape out of the city. Lot's wife looked back, turned into a pillar of salt, and so Lot and his two daughters end up in this cave. And the daughters are concerned that they won't have any children. They had had men... Um, uh, I can't recall if they were engaged to them, uh, in Sodom, who were destroyed in the city. And so they had, they had no men, and they're concerned about having children. And so they come up with this great plan of getting their father drunk two nights in a row, and each of the daughters uh, sleeps with him uh, in those subsequent nights, and each of them becomes pregnant by their father. And one of those is the child Moab. And from him comes the Moabites. The other child is Ammon, and that's where the Ammonites come from. So this is where the Moabites come from. Again, a bit of a messy situation. The Moabites weren't generally seen as um, good influences on the Israelites. They worshipped other gods. Um, there was a lot of sexual immorality that took place uh, among them and so on. <clears throat> Nonetheless, what happened was there was this family in, in Israel uh, that decided to go to Moab, and because there was a famine happening in the land. So they went to Moab. And um, so this is, this is Naomi and her husband and their two sons. And they find wives, two Moabite women, for their two sons. And uh, in the course of time, Naomi's husband dies and both of her sons die. So there's Naomi and her two daughters-in-law left. And so she decides, well, I'm just going to head back to the land of Israel, and um, her daughters-in-law are with her, but she says, no, no, you don't need to follow me. Just go back home. I can't give you any more you know, sons for you to marry. Um, so just go back home. But Ruth, Ruth is, is very devoted to Naomi, and she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And so she goes with Naomi and follows her, lives with her, um, and through the course of time, she meets Boaz and um, ends up getting married to Boaz and, of course, becomes part of the ancestry of Christ, this Moabite woman uh, who lost her first husband and, and, again, a bit of a messy situation. Um, just as a side note, in the Hebrew order of the Old Testament, Ruth comes after Proverbs, and there's, there's a belief there that uh, in Proverbs 31 where it talks about the woman of noble character, that that order is intention, uh, intentional in that it describes the woman of noble character and then the book of Ruth is meant to show us that Ruth is the real 
a woman of noble character, how she lives her life. Anyway, as a bit of a side note. So the story there ends nicely, but it's got a messy history to it. There's death, remarriage, um, the history of the Moabites, and so on. Then we've got Bathsheba. Um, 2 Samuel 11 is where you see this story. Of course, David sees Bathsheba bathing, summons her to the castle, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. Meanwhile, her husband is out with King David's army uh, fighting. And uh, so King David says, oh, I need, to, I need to cover this up somehow. So he calls Uriah back home from, from the front lines, Uriah the Hittite, and uh, he's wanting to cover this up. Well, Uriah, even though King David was trying to get him to go home and sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, so that it could at least appear as though this was his child, Uriah honors the king, says, no, I can't, how can I enjoy this? You know, when, when, when my comrades are at war and, and so on, he refuses to go and sleep with his wife. So King David writes a letter for his general, Joab, sends it with Uriah, and in this letter, it basically tells Joab, make sure Uriah gets killed. So that happens. David gets rebuked. The baby that Bathsheba is carrying ends up dying. Um, but because Uriah is dead and so on, then David does bring Bathsheba to the castle for her to live with him. And through the course of time, uh, she becomes pregnant again and has a son named Solomon, who then, of course, becomes part of the ancestry of Jesus. Another really messy situation. You've got adultery, you've got murder, cover-up, and so on. And yet, this is part of Jesus' ancestry. And finally, we've got Mary. And you find uh, details of, of her story, Matthew 1 and Luke 1. Mary, of course, there isn't any, any questionable behavior on her part that we read about. She's a servant of the Lord. She submits herself to uh, what Gabriel uh, tells her is going to happen to her in terms of the Holy Spirit coming on her and her becoming pregnant with the Son of God and so on. But just imagine... How convinced would you be if some teenage girl came to you and said, I'm pregnant and God did it? Oh, really? I haven't, you know, I haven't been promiscuous. It was God who did it. How likely would you believe that? Probably pretty unlikely. And that would probably be the case in her time as well. How believable is that, that somebody com becomes pregnant and yet is still a virgin? Highly unlikely. The, the movie The Nativity, I think, uh, does give a good picture of what the public perception may have been and where, where the people are just like, Mary's pregnant? Whoa, this is not good. Like, what did she do? And of course, Joseph would want to, uh, you know, divorce her quietly. Um, but thankfully, the Lord speaks to him in a dream and and, um, and so he, he follows it through. But no one or very few would likely believe this. It's, its appearance is messy. It's a messy situation in that way. There appears to be sexual promiscuity and deception going on here. And so here we have these five women that are all kind of messy in their own way. And I want to share with you five observations from this.
When we read the genealogy and we come across one of these names, and of course, it's not just the women that had messy situations. Um, many of these men did as well. But uh, I pick out the women because they're specifically highlighted here in this genealogy. Not to pick on them, but just to highlight how the Lord is so good and gracious to us. Um, when you come to a situation, a messy situation, you know, in this genealogy, well, the genealogy is not done. You don't stop there. You keep reading. You see, God is still writing the story. He's not done yet. You keep reading until you get to Jesus. That's where it ends. It doesn't end with the mess. It ends with Jesus. When we fail, when we're in terrible circumstances, when bad things happen, the story is not over. Jesus is still writing the story. It's only brought to, to completion when Jesus actually comes into the situation and begins to work with it. So in your situation, your mess is not the end of the story. He's still writing. And it only comes to completion in Christ. Right? Always look to Jesus and invite him to come into your mess. He actually wants to be there and work in it, which brings me to the second point. So the first one, the story isn't done. Second thing, God redeems our messes. It's not just that he sort of fixes the messy situations. He actually uses them to bring about his purposes. He is the great redeemer. Romans 8, 28, for we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. In all things, including our messes, he works in those situations for good. It's not just he kind of fixes it and it just stays to the side. He actually takes those things and uses them to accomplish his purposes in such a way that sometimes we look back and we think it couldn't have happened any other way. You look at the genealogy. He's got all these messy situations in there and you think, well, it couldn't have happened any other way because that's how that person was born. That's how that person was born. It doesn't mean that the messy situation itself was good in and of itself. But the Lord is so good at redeeming things that he brings about good through those situations. He redeems our messes. He took these situations and included them in the ancestry of his very own son. He redeems the broken things in our lives. In this case, in the world, in the lives of his ancestors, and uses them to bring his son into the broken world. He's our redeemer. So in your messes and our messes, fix your eyes on Jesus and allow him to come and redeem and see how he can work these things together for your good. Don't just try to stuff it down or hide it. How can he come in and redeem it? We have stories here of five different moms. And I know moms can really struggle with um, feeling like they're inadequate, feeling like they're just ruining their children. Um, more often than not, it's the mom who spends more time with the kids. And, um, and sometimes the patience might be lacking. 
and and so it's it's often them that feel more guilty for for how children are being raised let me just promise you this nothing is beyond the redemptive power of the lord you look at this and the messes that these moms found themselves in and how the lord brought such good things actually brought redemption through it the redemption of the world through that he is our redeemer again not that the messes themselves are always good again here we have prostitution adultery murder deception etc but he can bring these situations to a, a good conclusion and god is so amazing that he has that ability to do that number three you don't need to look beyond jesus Genesis 3.15, it says, and so this was after the fall, and um, God is speaking to Adam and Eve, and he says, uh, and I will put enmity, he's speaking to the serpent here, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ right at the beginning of it, there's Jesus praying and there's a snake that comes and he steps on it, and that's an allusion to this passage. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is called the first gospel. It's kind of the first promise of there being hope that God would send somebody to look after things. And from that point on, humanity kept looking for a deliverer, the seed of the woman. And in fact, it even appears as though Eve, when she bore Cain, and I don't have time to go into this, but it appears as though she thought perhaps Cain was this fulfilled promise, the seed of the woman. Obviously, he turns out not to be, but it seems as though uh, initially, she may have thought that. Well, he wasn't, and neither was the next generation, and so on. And, and you, you come to Genesis 5, there's a genealogy, and, and everybody keeps dying. And there is no great hope for mankind uh, that happens. And, and you, you have a number of genealogies. You, you, you get to the book of Numbers, there's some genealogies in there, Chronicles especially. There's piles of genealogies uh, happening uh, throughout, particularly the Old Testament. Um, and in all of this, there's kind of this hint that people are still looking for which, where's that seed of the woman? When is he going to come? Right? Well, when do the genealogies stop? They stop when Jesus shows up. After his birth, there are no more genealogies. The seed of the woman has finally arrived. There's no need to keep looking. Is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is it this guy? And that's obviously not the only purpose of genealogies, but I think there's something to that. There's, there's always this, this hope, this, this desire. Is this, is this the promise? Is this the fulfilled promise? And once Jesus comes, there's no more need for genealogies. There's no more wondering because he's it. There's no need to look any further. Let me promise you this. In your messes, you don't need to look beyond Jesus. He's the only one who can actually effectively bring healing, bring restoration, bring redemption, and fix these messes, fix our lives the way that they need to be fixed. We don't need to keep looking past Jesus. Number four, it's about his image, not our image. The whole point here is, is Jesus coming into the mess and doing what he does in terms of redemption. It's all about him, and it's his image that needs to be seen, not ours. 
See, the best thing that he does through our messes is actually that he conforms us to his image. Romans 8.29 talks about that. And, and that's essentially the goal of the Christian life is to be conformed into the image of Christ, to become like him. When we stop and we fix our eyes on ourselves and on our messes, I think it really prevents us uh, from seeing him and allowing him to use it, this whole situation to make us more like him. Again, he uses our messes to actually work in our lives, which is amazing. And it's about us becoming like him, about his image, like his, uh, being conformed to his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And the idea here is that as we're looking at him, we're reflecting him. And in doing that, we're actually becoming more and more like him, being transformed. It's about his image, not our image. It doesn't stop here, you know, with David even. It stops with Jesus. It's about him and him coming into the world. His image being what's reflected in us. So how do we do that? Well, by fixing our eyes on him. As we keep our focus on him, we become like him reflecting him and being conformed to his image. It's about his image, not our image. And finally, number five, our identity is in him. In Luke chapter four, we read another genealogy of Jesus. And this is the last genealogy in the scriptures. And it ends with the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam there is, is called the son of God. Our hope is in the Son of God, Jesus, not Adam. Jesus is called the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15. But we do look to the Son of God, and in, in one sense, physically, we are all in Adam. And we read about that uh, in Paul's writing. I can't recall exactly where that is. But we're all in Adam because Adam sinned, and so through one man's sin, we've all sinned because we were in Adam. As believers... All believers are in Christ, the true Son of God, the ultimate Son of God. And this, this is really profound, really significant in terms of understanding our identity in the Lord. And there's a lot that could be said here, and I'm just going to try to sum it up, um, and hopefully it's clear, clear in my communication. John chapter 1. It says, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We have the right, as we trust him, to be his children. I, I can't, off the top of my head, think of any other rights that are given to believers in the scriptures. But we actually are given that right to become his children. When you look at the scriptures... It seems pretty clear that, that our identity, it's not based on what we've done. It's not based on um, our positions, not based on our accomplishments, our possessions, anything like that. It's actually based on who our father is. People are identified as so-and-so, son of so-and-so in, in some cases. Our identity is rooted in who our Father is. 
You see that in Jesus, he's the son of God. Even, even his, his title, so to speak, the son of God, um, that's what we call him. He's the son. His identity is wrapped up in who his father is. Uh, at his baptism, God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, that was even before he started his ministry. He hadn't really accomplished his full purposes yet. And, and God said, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Right? Uh, when Jesus went out to the wilderness, Satan directly attacks his identity. It says, if you are the son of God, then this then do this or whatever. Turn these stones into bread, throw yourself down from the temple, bow down and worship and so on. So he, he's challenging Jesus's identity. And us, our identity is rooted in who our father is. And we have that right if we trust in Jesus to be the children of God, to have God as our father, even the Lord's prayer. It says, our father who art in heaven. We've been given the spirit of sonship it says in Romans chapter 8, I think it is, 8.15. We are in Christ. And our identity is based on our sonship um, in relation to God. Positionally, we are his, his sons if we're in Christ. And we're co-heirs with him. The enemy will try to attack our identity. Just like he did Jesus in the wilderness. So, all that to say... And again, there's a lot more that could be said about our identity, but all that to say that our identity is not rooted in our messes. It's not rooted in our accomplishments either. Our identity is rooted in who our Father is. Don't let your messes in your life define who you are. Let your Father in heaven define who you are. And if, if God is your Father then you as his child, that is who you are. You are a child of God by, by right. You're a child of God if you trust in him. That's your identity. And out of that then stems so many other things. But that's what it's rooted in. As we're in the Son, he sees us as his children as well. So, <clears throat> Jesus is the author of our faith. He's the one who's writing the story. He's the writer of our story. And as we strive to please him and live a holy life, we will stumble in many ways, James tells us. But don't let these stumblings or our own weaknesses or our circumstances in life define um, what our lives are all meant to be about or who we are. Let the real presence of Jesus come in and transform us, transform our situations. It's all about him. It all points to him. Let him come and redeem. Lift it up to him. Don't focus on your messes. Don't focus on your situations. Focus on the Lord. Fix your eyes on Jesus and see what he does with our messes. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that, that when we sin that that's okay. But God is the redeemer. He is the redeemer. As we, as we confess to him, as we repent, he has such an amazing way of working out his purposes in and through our messes and using them to bring his presence into a broken world. It's phenomenal. Let him finish writing the story. 
it's always a good ending when he writes the story of our lives as we trust in him. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are the author of our story. You're the one who is working these things together for our good. So we trust in you. Lord, I pray for those that maybe are, are finding themselves in a really difficult mess right now. And Lord, I pray that, that they wouldn't um, feel like that's the end of the story. I pray you would instill hope in their hearts and in their minds, knowing that, that you're working and you, you will work and, and that they would be able to fix their eyes on you, trusting in you, knowing that um, you can redeem the situation and you can bring about good things through that, just like you did through these messy situations uh, that these women found themselves in. You used them all to bring about the very presence of your son in this world, to redeem the world. So Lord, I pray that we would always have that hope, that understanding that you are the redeemer. And our messes, our circumstances, situations, weaknesses don't determine the end of the story. You do. And so we bless you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys.